Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Fondle Podcast. My name is Andrew, and my blog is comicsfondle.com. And I'm Vernon, and I'm the owner and proprietor of the wonderful comics establishment, the Comics Gallery of Wilmette, Illinois. And we've uh, been away for a while due to holidays, due to recording issues, due to all sorts of things. But we're back, and it is uh, time to do the best of 2015. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of, I mean, you know, despite the fact that, uh, you know, Marvel and DC just kind of crapped out in 2015 as far as producing comics that Andrew and I could physically read, uh, we have a pretty full podcast of the best of 2015, and uh, there's really a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, we always go for the bad news first. Uh, should we go for the biggest disappointments of 2015 and get that out of the way first? I suppose. Yeah. So... Starting our list of the biggest disappointments, with a caveat, of course, most of, some of these, not most of them, some of them have caveats, at Archie Comics. They did their big expansion based on the success of uh, Afterlife with Archie, and uh, they've produced a couple good books, the Sabrina books, uh, Archie, Afterlife with Archie, Vernon likes uh, the Fiona Staples, Mark Wade Archie, I believe. And the Jughead's pretty good, too, because it's done... I think what is it, drawn by the same uh, person that draws the uh, Squirrel Girl or one of the gang, the Adventure. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Archie's done a great job in 2015 of producing quality products. The biggest disappointment is their frequency. I mean, you've got to wait like, well, let's put it this way. Afterlife with Archie and Sabrina, their strongest books, haven't shipped in months, if not many, many months. Sabrina, have there been? Have there been three yet? I think we got up to four, believe it or not. And after Life with Archie reached that grand old number of seven. And even though these were aesthetically great books, you know what? In this marketplace, as a retailer, you got to put something on on a regular basis, you know? So I'm, I'm all about Archie, but they got to get their legal problems and their cash flow out of the way so we can at least get some comic books from them. You know what I mean? Sakaza yeah. was even – he was their most successful writer, and he got elevated to the position of creative director, whatever that means. And Archie, probably, what, one of six employees or whatever the hell it is. Uh, but they got to get their act together. they got to get it soon because their momentum is kind of hurt, even though they produce good books. So anyway, uh, our second biggest disappointment of 2015 has to be the – Wonderful Neil Gaiman and J.H. Williams Sandman Overture series, which had to be the most hyped, overblown, and uh, ultimately unsatisfying uh, comic uh, that DC published. Uh, what did they get a late issue out of every three and a half months or something like that? I don't know. But I know that about two-thirds of the way, I just kind of lost interest waiting for the thing to happen. And I just kind of never even finished it because of the tardiness. And that's echoed with customers, Okay. I think my sales dropped over 50% over the length of that title, and there is attrition, but that's serious attrition. So, again, DC frequency of publishing, you know, you got to get the shit out, man. Comics fans come in every week. They are forgiving, but they can only forgive so many times if you don't get product out. I'll let you touch on the next one. Next one is Red One, um, which was uh, a Dodson production from Image that... Set in the 70s, very cheesecake, very uh, sort of exploitation. They were doing it, though, for the European market. Yep. For albums. Yeah, that wasn't really clear in the way that they published it here in the States. Instead, in the States, they released a couple issues, and... um, That was it. That was it. 
And it's, it's just kind of, and now I think they're waiting a year or two. I mean. It, and it's only two more issues. I don't understand that. So, so you're telling me you couldn't put out four issues because you want to do it for the European market and you're waiting a year to do the other two. And I'm like, excuse the expression, but WTF. I mean, who, who brings you more money, America or England? You know, I mean, right. yeah. And I mean, well, I don't even think it's that European market. I think, I think they're thinking continental. Yeah, but whatever. If you only got four issues, uh, throw that fuck, throw those fucking four issues out. Get them out there and put them in one out. I mean, what is a four issue trade paperback going to cost? Nine ninety nine tops. Maybe, maybe a no, because they want to print it oversized album style and get what probably twelve ninety five for a pair. I oh, mean, no, it's no. just. They love $20. Expect $20 on that thing. So, again, it was a, 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 that frequency of publishing just hurts, hurts, hurts. You know what? Here, here's, here's some news. If you're a wannabe comics book publisher, get the shit out or get the hell out of business. You know what I mean? Don't use your own money. Find somebody Wait a second. Out. What? I wasn't supposed to talk about Red One. I was supposed to talk about Miracle Man. I know, but I was going along with it, man, because I was uh, going to stop. Shit. Anyway, go ahead and talk about Miracle Man. You're more in love with it. Well, you're not in love with that series, but you had a lot more sympathy for it than I did, at least initially. What, the gaming reprints? A little bit. I think you got through the first issue and thought it was okay. I got through, I think, the first two. Yeah, so Marvel finally got around after butchering the uh, reprints of the Alan Moore ones. Uh, by censoring them and toning down um, nudity, vi- not violence, just nudity, and yeah. childbirth, too. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. horrible. It's five bucks and an I issue. Think, I think they cut down on some gay subtext or something, too. Like, they cut that. So they've now gotten to the Mark or the Mark Buckingham, right? And yeah. Neil Gaiman reprints. And then this is going to lead into Buckingham and Gaiman doing, uh, finishing off their arc. So I I had read the uh, original collections from Eclipse of the Mar- Alan Moore, and now it was time to read the Neil Gaiman because he was the one who you know got Marvel to buy this, and yeah, it's really um, really. If you've ever read Swamp Thing Annual number five, the one where he does Brother Geek on a rampage and Swamp Thing's not in the issue, that's. That's kind of like what Miracle Man is, only not as only Miracle Man's not as interesting. I mean, Miracle Man is all these stories in the mythology. Only it's not really that interesting in mythology. Um, Miracle Man actually has very little to do with the stories in some ways. He's not yeah, even the protagonist. So, it was uh, it was a big disappointment because of the quality of the stories. I mean, Gaiman. I mean, for all his ferociousness as a writer, uh, turned in some pretty tepid stuff and Buckingham was at the beginning of his career and really I mean I know Eclipse had to do it on the cheap but it was a really big letdown from the Alan Moore stuff with yeah. John Alban and stuff and I'm like god I don't even know if I'd want this reprinted because it's pretty sad stuff the fact that Marvel put it in five dollar issues you know I mean they were, they were protecting themselves from losses but again it was like a who cares after a while you get right. a couple of them under your belt like Jesus, this isn't anything. I think I think like every single customer in my store dropped it after issue three or four. Pretty sad stuff. All right, I'll go on to the next one. Airboy James Robinson. This is a mixed bag. I, I didn't feel it was really a bad disappointment, and uh, Robinson probably ended it in the best way he could. It could have gone disastrously off the rails. Where he, it's a self autobiographical tale of himself and the creator Greg uh, Greg Hinkle. 
and used in Airboy as it became a public domain property as a basis for a story. And and Robinson is not Alex and who is it, what's what's Robinson James Robinson James James, James used it as the four issues as kind of like a self exploratory examination of how his own life has come to this point and become a bit of a failure and he drags this poor cartoonist on a ride and it's interesting but I'm not sure why you'd want to publish it. Uh, it, 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 it shows uh, Mr. Robinson in a less than great light. He, he actually uh, admits to screwing over his ex-wife and what a lot of lousy husband he was. And, and, and it shows him as a philanderer and a heavy drug addict dragging this young cartoonist along for a ride. And I just said to myself, it's interesting, but I'm not sure why it was published. But that said, it finished up. In four issues, it was actually a story it has a beginning and an end. And Mr. Greg Hinkle, this is kind of his introduction to me as a cartoonist, and I hope to see some more things from him. But, again, very bizarre. A bizarre choice to publish. All right, we'll let you handle our final disappointment of the year. Our final disappointment is uh, Brandon Graham's universe. The Brandon Graham, uh, he doesn't have an imprint title, an image, but he does have a number of books that he's uh, editing and putting together for them, including... Uh, what is it? It's Eight House, and it's uh, Island. And uh, what was that? They, they must be mountains or something like that, or they make mountains, or I forget what the hell the title is. Something's got mountains in it. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and so, it, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's a cool idea, right? He's doing an, two different kinds of anthologies. He's doing one that has, you know, two issue stories, and then another that you have. It's a seven or eight dollar, sixty four pages plus. And lots of stories, lots of creators. And, um, you know, some of the Eight House was all right. Yeah. It, the, the Eight House had a nice concept because it took place on this one world. And uh, Graham invited his creative friends to do, like, one, two-issue story arcs within this world with different characters and stuff like that. But it all is supposed to exist in the uniform, universe, whereas Island was more of a free-lit anthology title along the lines of uh, heavy metal, but when you're a creator and then you're forced to be an editor, those are two different jobs. And while Brandon Graham might in and of himself be a very masterful indie creator who always brings people to the table with his stories, he didn't, he showed too much love for his fellow indie creators and not enough slap in the head. You know, if, if, if something was uniformly okay, he printed it anyway. And, right, and it was being. You, you got to say, okay, you know what? I love you, man, but you know the story isn't very good, and and it's not going to build our readership at all. And that was probably the biggest disappointment I think for me and you on this list here, because we're really we were really hoping for some shit because we love Brandon Graham, okay, and we love his. And then it just it, coming on the heels of profit, not exacting exactly ending right. Exactly. <sighs> It was a disaster, and uh, you know the books. Uh, it, it, Island has gone to a uh, saddle stitch format. It's no longer a magazine, although it has the same page count. Uh, I suspect it might last another half dozen issues tops. I think uh, what do you call that arc? Eight House has already been canceled. It got canceled as of six, so that would have to rank as a major aesthetic disappointment to people who like already independent comics to some degree, like Andrew and I do. So anyway, let's get to the positive aspects of the show. Yes. We've got some we've got a list of runners up 
that for whatever reason or another didn't make our top list of 2015. So I'll let you handle the first one on our runners-up list. Bernie's let me handle it because it's ghosted by Joshua Williamson and I don't know if Vernon finished Ghosted. Did you finish it? I did. I did finish Ghosted. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think it ran, what, 16 issues? About that. He got his story told. Maybe 20. Yeah. And it's one of those books where you're kind of like, well, he doesn't really have to finish it. He's sort of not fulfilling the promise of this, you know, sort of, I don't know. I I, I hate to call him a Constantine-ish type of character. But, yeah, but he, the guy had adventures, you know? It was like, you felt like this guy, the character would have multiple adventures, except it all got wrapped up. Pretty little bow, um, and now it, it's pretty much... But, and it had a rocky finish, but I, I have good thoughts about how it finished, which is pretty good, because it's rough. I yeah. mean, these... He, these I indie he, books... Unless they take off, what is the last indie book that's taken off that's gone more than 20 issues without a lot of problems? That we still read. So, I mean, that Ghosted, we got to the end of Ghosted. I mean, it's a successful, you know, you get those four trades, you've got a successful little read. It was a great run. And, uh, you know, what what was really nice is that... uh, Joshua Williamson was able to get the most out of his artist. Like he'd have a yes. different artist on every arc, and they were very sympathetic to his uh, his needs as a writer and an atmosphere that the book needed to convey. And not only that, but they were pretty consistent on how they depicted the main character and all of yes. his associates. And it was a pretty solid book. Um, the ending, like you say, it was a little trunicated. It was like he could see the writing on the wall. The book wasn't doing financially well. He tied it up a little early. But you know what? He had four really defined arcs that come out as trades. I don't even know if they're in print. They might be in print. Check with the retailer. But if you like the Constantine type stuff of a, of a kind of an escape artist guy who deals with the uh, macabre and the uh, supernatural is good. Um, what do you call it? Runner up another one. Mind Management by Matt Kent. Now, Matt Kent can go either way for me. Sometimes he drives you nuts. He's got a really visually ugly drawing style that you really got to get by. I mean, you got to love indies, okay, because he doesn't, utilize anatomy and foreshortening and draftsmanship the way a traditional comic artist does. But his story of this one woman with exceptional powers who discovers an agency that actually created her and then sets upon a quest to find out about it and what it was about and what her place was in it was actually a pretty good conspiracy comic. And Matt Kent worked within the um, limitations of his artwork and Dark Horse was very patient and that thing went for a while. I forget what it was. It was almost uh, 40 issues or something like that. Yeah. And it worked out pretty good. Uh, again, I, I can't re- – some of these books, there, there really aren't any horrible flaws, but they stand out to something that didn't become a particularly big success. I mean, I think the thing sold 5,000 copies per issue. I don't know. So they obviously had in it. But, you know, that was, that was a pretty good one. Uh, Mind Management was a fine conspiracy comic. You might be off-put by Kent's artwork, but you know what? Sometimes you got to work with what you get, and I got through it, so that was fine. Unwritten. I didn't read Unwritten. You didn't read Unwritten. Okay, well, that's an old one that actually finished up in 2015. Mike Carey and uh, his associate in crime, Peter Gross, uh, probably to me, 
the last successful Vertigo extended series, okay? Uh, we're talking Sandman, we're talking Lucifer, we're talking Fables that all ran like what decades worth of issues. And uh, he was able, uh, Carrie and Gross were able to wrap up on the story of a young man trying to find his place in the universe and how his father, who is a successful writer, created him and put him in that universe. And it was a pretty wild trip. It deals with all sorts of modern mythology, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, perhaps it didn't make the best of list because it was a mainstream comic and kind of tread ground that it, we'd already been through with Vertigo. But I tell you, it was probably the last hurrah of Vertigo. You know what I mean? When you look at the shape of that division of DC now, there's no way that they could create another lengthy saga like Unwritten again. But definitely worth your time. And Peter Gross said, Mike Carey remain favorite creators of mine. All right, here's one for you, baby. Uh, Sons of Anarchy. So Sons of Anarchy is uh, it's kind of a legacy just because... Um, it really hit its stride in the middle with Ed Brisson. Yeah. Ed Brisson didn't finish it up. You know, you, you go for the – who is it? Ryan Ferrer finished it off with a bit of a sour note. But thank God it was only four issues, right? I mean, yeah. I, yeah. And it was a little frustrating because Ferrer's going to come up again on our list a couple times here. Yeah. And he's a guy that you want to give a chance. Yeah. And so – it's like he'll show you something and you give him another issue and then he doesn't. So you give him another one to see if he turns it around and he does. And then you give him another one and he didn't turn it around. And you're just like, shit. <laughs> what? Like, I didn't need to read this. So it's, uh, it, it remains a flawed work, but still worth reading, I think. Yes. I mean, as a licensed property, it's very hard to think of anything else like this. Yeah, I think it was successful in a way that very few licensed properties are. They were able to take some liberties, but when you think of the limitations of not being able to break apart from the television show and do too much radical, it all's got to be set back so the TV can show, and, and it doesn't contradict anything that the TV show wants to do. And you're doing, you're doing um, crime drama as a comic without... This isn't an existing subgenre, you know. There are there have been noir comics pretty regularly for the last ten, twelve years. <clears throat> There's no biker comics that no. you know. It's not a standard genre or subgenre. So they're you know, and it's kind of ambitious of boom, and it's impressive that they were able to get it done. And I think that it needs to be an outfit that is going to work for their license. Lots of outfits don't. I mean, when you think about. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't read any of the Devil's Do stuff, but I mean, look at IDW's Star Trek. Like, that that sells to people who buy Star Trek comics. Yes. They're going to buy it no matter what the art looks like. They're going to buy this. They're going to, they are, they're not growing anything. IDW's not throwing a cent at that book. They've never even put, what's his name, J.K. Woodward on that book. Like, they don't care. Oh, yes, they did. He did uh, City on the Edge of Tomorrow, which had a terrible script. Um, so it's just like, yeah. So it's cool that, that Boom really t made the effort to make that a special book. You know, and it did. It, it worked out. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of licensed comics because I generally am not really into television shows for the long haul. I'm certainly not obsessed over very many of them. But they did a really good job at creating a comic. Now, I never saw the TV show, but no, I read the comic I still haven't either. Month. 
Yeah, you you haven't seen any Sons of Anarchy? Yeah. See, now it just goes to show you that you and I appreciate it on the comic level because that's the only way we're exposed to the property. You know, I know. And, and I just said, well, you know, it was it was a pretty good read. I, I liked it and I enjoyed it. And I kept it up. And uh, let's see, next on the list is uh, Nameless, which is an unusual property by uh, one of my favorites, Grant Morrison, who pushes the boundaries but doesn't quite have that structure that makes it a successful best-of-the-year comic. Nameless is about this uh, psychic, mystic kind of guy who gets involved in this plot to unleash the holy hell on Earth. And Chris Burnham's artwork... You know, to do odd push the boundary stories stuff that guys like Ellis and Ennis and Morrison and more do, you got to be teamed up with just the right artists to make it convincing and make it work. And Chris Burnham's story is or his artwork matches Morrison's insanity and violence every way, and the, the psychic phenomena and everything. It's a beautiful book of wild, perverted, twisted imagery. And uh, I think that Nameless, uh, its six-issue run was certainly a fun read, although it ends on a very cryptic note, because that's what Morrison does. He loves to be cryptic, you know. So, at any rate, I, I, I put Nameless as one of those runners-up this year, anyway. This one I, I'll let you have, because uh, it's, uh, that's more your line than it is mine, anyway. Well, it is now. It's Rat God. It's Rat God. Our it's favorite. Rat God by how freaking old is he? How old is Corbin? We were talking about 72. 75 years old. Holy shit. If. I'm trying to think. So here you got the 75 year old man. Doesn't need to work. Well, maybe he know. does. God, I hope not. I really hope Corbin doesn't have to work. He withstood the lure to the big-time names until he was well into his 50s when he probably needed some bucks or whatever. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's Dark Horse. They let him do these... uh... This one's sort of Lovecraftian a little. The others have been... Some of them have been Lovecraftian. Some of them have been... Didn't he do a Poe? Anyway, yeah. doesn't matter. Rack I love Crafters Bread and Butter. What's... Uh, <sighs> so you got this 75-year-old Richard Corbin, guy who does horror comics. Rat God still managed to have about the only that I read this year big three and a half. I'm not going to, like, no image book that I read had this. But, you know, Corbin's doing, you know, ruminations on race and things like that. And it's just, and history and how, and racism in history and, and all Last these things. Struggle. And it's just like, seriously? this, And it's just like, oh my God, it's just great. And you're just... You want to? Did we say? Did I already say that this is the kind of thing Vertigo should have been breaking their back to get? No shit. I mean, uh, okay, it's got some naked native women with their breasts hanging out or whatever. But it's Richard Corbin. That'll sell some comics. That's right. You should be blessed to be able to publish Richard Corbin. (sighs) So yeah, and it's a nice what five issues? It's got to have a great. 
little trade. I mean, it's just so good. Right. It's about, what is it? It's about a guy who goes back and forth in time when he tries to pursue his true love in her natural small town she grew up in. It's like his college love or whatever, and he, he loses uh, her and he tries to pursue her and he gets caught up in this weird gas Cold and, oh, it's just... <sighs> Indian legends and sexuality and zombies and all sorts of shit and, and sacrifices and and nude people running around trying to kill each and other. Giant monsters because it's Corbin. I mean, you know, you pick, I read I pick up a Richard Corbin because I'm I'm generally squeamish. I will I'll fall for uh, you know I, I read uh, Crossed and uh, Providence with with fear. Yep. So, I mean, like, Corbin, you know it's coming because he always gets you. And it's just like, it's still so damn beautiful the way he does it. It's like uh, Stephen R. Bissett's insects that, you know, you want to puke and you're just like, but it's so beautiful. He just did so, it's just awful but wonderful. You're right. And so, yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. I, I Don't miss Red God if you're a fan, a fan of uh, horror and Lovecraft, that's for sure. Not to mention Corbin. But yeah. anyway, I'll, I'll whip out the next two because I think I'm more familiar with those. Uh, you are. Gonna, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna the runners up actually. Even though Archie was a big disappointment as a company, their Archie and uh, Jughead series, like we mentioned earlier, were very nice rejuvenations. They're great updates to the characters. Mark Wade, who's uh, writing, and I can't remember who writes Jughead. Please forgive me. Uh, they did a great job reinventing these characters for a modern audience. And I swear, although I couldn't pick up an Archie comic, an, a, a typical one in Barf, these were great, and I just enjoyed the hell out of them. And they're great all-ages reads. So don't miss those. Um, the next one is a bit of a hard one. Uh, Casanova, they put out, I think Matt Fraction probably put out his last volume of Casanova, because this one sold so poorly. I, I can't imagine him doing any more. He had Gabriel, is it Gabriel, Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba were his artists, and the uh, story of a time-traveling, dimension-hopping James Bond type of character with a lot of family issues, uh, it demands a certain amount of attention, and you can't, it's not a light read, because you really got to pay attention, you got to go back and forth, but I found it successful that it just kept my interest in kind of a hypnotic way to find out what Casanova is going to do next, who he's going to run into, what's going to happen. And it was a very successful series in that. I mean, he follows through uh, in the same genre he did in his earlier Casanova series. And uh, these were good. I don't think a lot of this stuff is not commercially uh, popular, but that doesn't make it not good. Okay. And if you, if you're a fan of, Semi-complicated stories that jump back and if forth. If you like Daredevil, or not Daredevil, Hawkeye, step up. Give Fractions other yeah. stuff a shot. Right, because you'll go to that next level in terms of complexity. You know what I mean? Now here's our missing soldier coming up. Six Gun, which Vernon's looking at me like, and I'm like, I don't think I've, I've been waiting, you know, I stopped reading it three hiatuses ago to wait. I haven't yeah. read it since 20. It's like, un it's unwritten for me. I gotta finish it. It's, it's, but I know Hurt, Hurt was just tweeting that he, uh, he drew like the last issue. Really? I, I think so. Yeah. Where's it out? I think it's a double size. I hope it is, cause you know he does those wonderful double size panels. Oh. The Six Gun is a great epic saga. 
by uh, Colin Bunn, who's gotten a lot of uh, really terrible, huh? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Really terrible work at DC. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't don't get me started on some of the outside stuff. But you know what? Six Gun remains his kind of personal masterpiece. It is, and it's better than the Damned. Remember oh. the Damned? We were like, oh, it's going to be amazing, and then yeah. it was like, it's all right. It's but like, I mean, Six Gun. The it's, first one's really good, and then he just layered on complexity, and it just gave Hurt this wonderful, oh, so good. The the mythology and the complex mythology involved to carry all these characters and situations and Doom saying things about, uh, even this, the sixth gun revolves around a, uh, uh, a desire to collect all of these weapons and open a portal and reinvent Earth, and it's been done several times. And the sixth gun involves the latest one. And it's done during uh, the United States period, uh, post Civil War, into a Western type of era, or is it, yeah, it's it's like post Civil War. And I'm the last one that would recommend a cowboy horror saga, but this thing is so intricate and layered, and has such sympathetic lead characters that work and suffer and survive that I hope to God they finish it in 2016. That's all I can tell you. I love the book, and I want to see it happen. All right, next one you can have. War Stories, Garth Ennis at uh, Avatar this time. Uh, it's, it's sometimes it's really good. It's many years sometimes, old. Yeah, it's on issue 16 or 18 now. Not sometimes it is a very, very good comic book. Um, sometimes it is not. And... A lot of the problems initially were that Garth doesn't have the caliber of artist he's used to. Um, but even Garth is getting tired yeah. of uh, some of these. And this is an issue, this is a series that you'll go from, wow, that's the best, you know, single issue of an arc that Ennis has written in two years. Yeah, and right. the next issue, they're like, what the hell is this piece of shit that he wrote? Maddingly inconsistent. Yeah, so it it's back and forth, but you can't, it's it's an undeniable, uh, you know, it's Ennis's in our sort of group of writers whose work is important and uh, War Stories is important it's just frustrating when it's bad. Yeah, yeah we, we talk about editors but you know this might be a, 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 what do you call that, a result of no money involved in this project. I can't I, imagine that you know the artist yeah. they get from East Europe or wherever the hell they're at is Serbia or wherever these poor guys come from. They don't make any money doing work for Avatar so they do the best they can you know what I mean? Sitting here, I'm wondering what war stories would look like in black and white with, like, filters applied to, like, rough it up and make it look like a cheap magazine war comic. Might help. I think that would help it. Yeah, it's like... Well, when Dynamite had the book, they actually had some fairly name-brand artists on the book. Mm -hmm. And when he brought it to Avatar, which is kind of an extension of a book that's not selling. I mean, war stories right. don't sell. But, you know... Yeah, war stories are Ennis's bread and butter. It's what he's really involved with. And even on a shitty Ennis book, you can still read a war story by Ennis. You know, because war stories was an anthology that would usually, what, the three issues and done pretty much mm -hmm. or whatever. These individual stories all over the world about stories, predominantly in World War II, uh, but just great heartfelt stuff. 
but again, a, a runner-up to best. Um, the next one of ours um, is a mixed bag uh, nowadays. Uh, it started off really strong, and now it's kind of like a uh, addictive monthly read for us. Uh, Letter 44 by Charles Soleil and Alberto Albuquerque. Um, started out a really good conspiracy comic about man's first uh, contact with aliens. And it's since then kind of went into soap opery type jivey stuff. And <sighs> not the soap opery stuff we were promised either. No. We never got the fallout from her sleeping with the senator. That's Sorry. absolutely correct. Well, you know, <sighs> and no, no man is that liberal as his wife, okay? I don't care how, how big of a president you are. But that said, letter 44 is generally a decent read, and uh, I'm, I'm really sorry that, that, that Charles Soule got hired by Marvel for real money now that he's got to write crappy Marvel superhero stories and not devote his supreme attention and love to his only creator-owned property. So, Charles, if you're listening in, please spend <laughs> a weekend on this shit and make it better because Andrew and I have been following you since the beginning, and you really you deserve to finish this up good. I don't care what it takes. Yeah. Uh, Okay, next up is another mixed bag, Manifest Destiny. Um, Started strong. It, too, has the uh, unfinished subplot of the hedonistic behaviors of Lewis and Clark uh, for the uh, 17th century or 18th century, whenever they are. So, I mean, you know, it's decent. I mean, it's it's probably more of a genre read, isn't it? It's turning into more of a genre read. It's it's sort of like the books started really emphasizing the science, I feel like. There's journals, and by science, I mean natural science of their observations, but also, you know, how they're moving through history, right? They're, they're moving through the continent and through history and recording it and meeting all of these unusual uh, creatures and indigenous we peaks. We never had payoff from Pocahontas. No, right? no, it's not Pocahontas. It's not Pocahontas. What's her name? Sacagawea. Sacagawea. She's their Literally, guy. she's gotten pregnant and sick. Yeah. We were promised, what, the first issue that she was going to kick living ass. Right. And instead, she she's... She's a pregnant sick woman. She's a pregnant sick woman and... The her nursemaid has more to do. Yeah, and it's it's, it, yeah. it's a book that really needed a strong editor. It, it did because you're just like, what happened with it though? Because it's like, does this guy actually not want to deliver on anything he promises, or does he keep changing his mind as he's right? Like, what is it? It's a very uneven book. But they finished up an arc. Taking a break. They finished, yeah, they're taking a break for a few months, and they finished up their latest arc, and it had some problems. Manifest Destiny's had pacing problems since the second issue. Um, but it was a really effective arc. Yes, and you like the characters. I mean, yeah, and I mean, and it hurt. I mean, they actually got, yeah. So the thing is, the book is capable of more, it just doesn't often get there and it doesn't like I don't even think the arc ended well I think like the cliffhanger for the continuation was lame right like yeah yeah you know and that was actually kind of a semi-strong arc too where they had to like yeah utilize the creatures 
that they were befriending to help them conquer a problem. Okay, we can't we can't talk. Yeah, we much can't we can't go spoilers. spoilers, right? We can't so we're gonna spoilers. we're gonna move on to Curb Stomp. Yeah. Uh, now Curb Stomp is one of the other Ryan Ferrer books. It's a did I tell you to read it, or did you tell me to read it? I think I think I told you, but I I fell off, and then you when I was reading your reviews, you actually got me back into it. So it was four issues. The first issue, pretty good. Uh, kind of reminds you of Little Love and Rocketsy because it's punk girls in like a beach. You know, it's obviously not the Hernandez brothers, but. And it's cool, right? right. And the right. first issue is pretty good. And then the second issue is freaking awesome, right? It, what the, it, and then the third it, issue was terrible. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the fourth issue was like really good. Yeah, it ties it up nicely in four yeah, issues. Yeah, and you're just like son of a bitch. Like, mm-hmm. can you just? It's like all of these four issue books at this point, and this was also another boom book. Um, you're just like maybe three. Let's do three. You know, like yeah. I know you can't really sell a trade of a three. But it, it would work better, or, or, or at least with it again with a good editor, it might have it might have gone to four if it had a better editor to, to straighten out some of the problems. I mean, yeah, the story but, of a female gang member and what she'll do to keep her friends and family surviving into a what I'm going to call it a California girls gang or whatever. I think it was a Florida girls gang, but yeah, Florida girls gang exactly. It was, uh, it was yeah. A good indie book. It, it, you know, I think. I think at the time when we were first reading this, we were. Um, we was that boom. Is this a boom? It's, this, boom? it's a boom, and it has like this indie cred where it's a very primitive book. Uh, who's my artist here? Vaki Niogi. Never heard of this person, and uh, I, I said, you know what? Devaki has issues with storytelling, but Devaki's chutzpah of getting through this project with a passion was always evident. And they get through it. I don't even know this is a man or a woman. I'm sorry at the time. Devaki is a name that blows me away. But uh, Curb Stop was worth reading just because it was a very passionate read on behalf of both the creators, anyway, I thought, you know. And that indie color scheme was just bizarre. All right, I'm going to rattle off three because I don't think Amber's uh, quite familiar with them as much as I am. Uh, Dave, that series from Dark Horse about robots in the future who take over and obliterate man. Uh, Dave is an interesting story. I mean, it's kind of wild because if you were an old reader of Magnus Robot Fighter in the future about humans that were afraid about how much robots were taking too much work from humans and eventually dictating the society, well, Dave shows the ultimate outcome where robots eliminate the human race and then begin acting like humans, strangely enough. And, and, and they're filled with social commentary and good dynamics about the main character who's like a failed warrior who's failed, who's got to take an insurance job or whatever it is after the war's over and everything. And uh, it's just this is another Ryan Ferrer book, Jesus. And his artist, Valentin Ramon, do a great job. I think this was published online first and then uh, Dark Horse or somebody reprinted it. And uh, it's a pretty funny book. I mean, Dave's wife and his son and all the domestic situations are very much uh, hilarious. And uh, his place in society and his boss and what he has to do to Jetson it all and become the Earth's greatest warrior robot is a really compelling story with a lot of sociological laughs to it. Don't miss Dave. Um, Odyssey, this is another one that was semi-successful. Uh, Matt Fraction and his artist Christian Ward, uh, they retell the Homer's Odyssey mythology, only they utilize women in all the lead roles, 
and Christian War gives it this heavy metal futuristic fantasy kind of setting. It's drug-induced and stuff. And while it's not an easy read, because I can't imagine Homer being an easy read under any circumstances, they managed to bring it to comic books with a bit of panache and originality. That worked fine for me, so I enjoyed that book quite a bit as well. And the last one I'm going to crank out here as a runner-up uh, temporarily is Phonogram. Now, Kieran Gillen and is an interesting writer, and uh, his partner in crime, Jamie McKelvey, did a series of books uh, set in Britain among witches and warlocks that derive their mystical powers from the, 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 the mythology of rock and roll. And it's filled with pop rock uh, history and bands and interesting characters. And if you like this kind of stuff where they kind of fight for power and eliminate one another and have weird squabbles, and it's just a really nice, clean thing. And if you like pop music, you can recognize a ton of references in this thing. So... It works wonderfully as kind of like a, a series of short vignettes or miniseries. So their latest one was is really good so far. It's their third arc, and they do a great job on it. So Phonogram, while not a perfect thing, is a real interesting thing for people who like, uh, I don't know, witchcraft. What's, what's the name? No, it's it's Phonograms for people who who like that damn band. Well, I'm not sure people like the damn band. Photograph is even better than the damn band. I'm not even sure what the damn band is is about yet. I'm I'm still working on that. <laughs> what? No, not that. That damn band. The one that there's all the references to. Oh yeah, about the uh, band that sells their soul to the devil. To no, no, not the other one. Phonogram. It's all about that band I don't like. The English singing group from the '90s that you liked. Uh, there's a lot of them. But the, 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 the guy who said he was bigger than John Lennon. Oh, shit. Oh, you're talking about, you're talking about uh, what, the, the Sex Pistols? No! Oh, hold on, everybody. Um, okay, so you're not talking about while we're thinking George. about this, let's start talking about uh, ah. Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which, you know... If if it weren't for, hold on, Oasis. Oh, well, that was just one piece of it. Oh, it's not one piece of it. If you don't like Oasis, you're not going to like this comic. Oh, you know, but the British pop references go back much further than this to the English beat and the Sex Pistols and stuff. I mean, Oasis is down the road, okay? It, it has a lot of British uh, pop influences, but that's probably because... Kieran Gillian is probably British, okay? He is. All right. Anyway, all right, moving on. So, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Um, didn't finish it, actually, because it started in 2015, and then they did Secret Wars and had to relaunch it, and I didn't finish the original series. I got four or five into it, and it was a good book. Um, a lot more energy than... You sort of, a, a lot better energy, I guess, than you would think from a Squirrel Girl comic drawn in a very sort of cartoony, um, somewhat cartoony style, but sharper lines. And then uh, set 
with Squirrel Girl going to college and sort of her. It it it, it reminds a lot of Batgirl. Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. But, situation. but it's funny and it's absurd and there's like wonderful Twitter references and Ryan North really gets what he's doing with it in a way that he almost wish that he was writing Batgirl. Yeah, <sighs> it's wonderfully hip. I mean, yeah. and, and, and Squirrel Girl is this wonderfully warm character that, like, tries to fight yeah. the villains that she's fighting. She she doesn't see them as enemies, but they're more like people who need help, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a wonderfully warm read. You can read, and, and Squirrel Girl is not a five-minute read, okay? That one issue I, I caught lately where they get this robot who's actually out of the Marvel Universe who's trying to destroy them. They become friends with the guy, and they try to help him reconstruct his body so he could be useful to humanity and enjoy his life for a change. And I'm like, this is a wonderfully refreshing plot for something as reverent as Squirrel Girl, you know? Yeah, so it's just really cool, and this year's issues are even better because they relaunched it, same creators. And, um, yeah, it's just it's just a really... It's a nice book that's really well done, too. Yeah, Ryan North, I think, was someone who might have been involved with, like, Adventure Time or at least some type of... Company. He was. I think he did write some of that. And Erica Hend- Henderson, the artist, uh, does a great job with it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. probably one of the densest Marvel books that takes, like, 15 to 20 minutes to read. And I, I don't think... I can't remember the last time I read a Marvel book that took me 15 minutes to read. So you really get your three ninety nines worth out of it, that's for sure. Anyway, that was a almost beautiful book. But uh, keep going on. Uh, we're going to go to Invisible Republic, an image book by Gabriel Hardman and his partner in crime, Karina Becco. This book started really interesting uh, about a brother-sister team or a cousin team that work their way up from surf level to rulers of a planet. And, I mean, that concept sounds really kind of interesting because I think the male eventually becomes king of the planet or at least the most powerful being there. Invisible Republic starts well, mm-hmm. but as you go along, I, I, I just got a little disinterested. You know what I mean? It wasn't like the characters. Like, he had a good situation, but he couldn't make the characters interesting enough to keep me wanting to read it, I guess, after a while. How far did you carry Invisible Republic? I, I can't remember. <sighs> I, I was Let in for see. four or five. Yeah, percent. I was in for a while, and... What, 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 what threw you off the title that you want to read it anymore? I mean, not that you didn't want to, but we just got overwhelmed. But there was something about that book that just didn't grab me by the balls and carry me along enough like I like when I continue titles. Did I just that. stop reading it? I might have just stopped reading it. Okay, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I, 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 I missed it. I think we're up to eight somehow. now or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I missed a couple of them. You know, it's it's an interesting um, political future, not really future. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, what is it, the Ender's Game books? Like really. So, you know, it's it's good, sort of solid. I mean, grounded, hard sci-fi without a lot, you know. Well, there's a lot of drama and human exposition, you know. I hate the protagonist, though. That's one of the problems. The protagonist is this reporter, and you just hate him. Right. Because he's just a dip. 
<clears throat> exactly. You you can't. It, it's hard. I mean, I think they made the mistake of not making their protagonist sympathetic enough or something. You yeah, it's like out. on a TV show, you could get away with it, but not right. In and our next one on the list of runners-ups is a book called Descender by Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nyan, who are pretty talented. Lemire has his ups and downs. He he started off, you know, it was really fun because uh, in the New 52, he was almost like the darling of DC. He was doing a lot of stuff. For yeah, he all was. Of a sudden, and all of a sudden, you don't even see his name hardly anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, well, everything in DC is failing sales-wise, so Jeff Lemire, I guess, is just part of the uh, uh, damage, I guess. But uh, Descender is a book he did, uh, creator-owned over at Image with Dustin Nyan, who's a very gifted artist. And while uh, Andrew, I know, had problems with it because it pretty much lifts the plot of Spielberg's AI to some degree and graphs it into comic form about a boy robot who's the last of his species who becomes like the most valuable object in the universe through a series of situations. Um it's still got me going. It's not anything but genre fiction, okay? But it, it, it keeps its momentum. The characters are all well-defined. They're all well-designed. And I think it's a very possible uh, thing that you could easily translate into other media. So while it doesn't... Oh, I bet anything, you could make a movie out of it. I bet you could. <clears throat> Ooh, yes, yes, exactly. Put that on a stick. Uh, it, while Descender has its... Um, Problems with originality, it's decently uh, executed, and I'll give it that. Uh, let's see, I'm going to have to keep going here, because we got one of my favorite art- writers, Ward Ellis, on the next one. You know, in the latest issue of Injection came out after a little hiatus after the first trade, and it was good! And I like the idea of a group of disparate, not necessarily scientists, but intellectual people from a lot of different fields who have been contracted by the English government to advance science and the internet. And so they make the intel they, they, they insert a form of intelligence into the internet and it becomes sentient. And it doesn't have repercussions until years later when these people are all like gone their own way and all that kind of stuff. And it's a nice conspiracy, mystery, horror book. Warren Ellis and Declan Shelby, uh, they make it fully convincing and the characters are interesting. And Injection is a really nice, typical Warren Ellis theoretical science fiction book that works. It's not all new, but it's well executed and fun, and I like that a lot. All right, I'll let you have the next one. All right. So, Order of the Forge. Victor Gishler. Yay! Hopefully everybody's gone and read some Victor Gishler because you're you're, you're missing. You're missing out on a lot. And uh, Order of the Forge is who even published this? Order of the Forge published by Dark Horse. They have a thing on Victor. They do have a thing on Gishler, except this isn't owned by Gishler. This isn't creator owned. He was doing another product for him. Does he own anything? I mean, that that one zombie, uh, the Undead, or whatever the hell it was that Dark Horse published, was originally a uh, European album that they brought to America and translated. I think. Sally? So, no, I forget. It was. It was just before. He did the Vampire and Werewolf one, though. That's his. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. Was, Femme Fatale as well. I think. I don't know. Yeah. If he, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Okay. 
So, Order of the Forge is this, uh, it's the story of George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Paul Revere, uh, fighting monsters and political corruption and George Washington romancing a Native American girl? I don't know. I think she's, she's a mulatto, uh, yeah. house, house help or something. I don't know. It's, they're looking for Zoe Salandra to be in the movie, everybody. <sighs> and it is very packaged like that, and one really hopes Dark Horse can sell that to Hollywood, because it'd be a lot of fun to oh, see. And Gishler would... sells this ludicrous concept. He loves ludicrous concepts. And it just, yeah, it's, it, it's gr- more grounded than a lot of his stuff, but it's still just fantastic. It's funny... And yeah. you, you using like the founding fathers of America in a horror story where they team, but it's action. I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, it's all there. All the elements are there for media development in a movie. I don't know why it's not a movie for crying out loud. When I look at how much money Warner Brothers wastes on Superman versus Batman, when you could have so much better film of Order of the Forge. <laughs> Ah, well, keep going, keep going. Anyway, let's move past Vernon's unneeded commentary on filmmaking. The Spire by, oh, do we even know their names? Simon Spurrier and Jeff Stokely. Simon Spurrier and Jeff Stokely, the guys who did uh, Six Gun Gorilla a couple years ago. Yep. Spire is their uh, sci-fi fantasy... Thing, and it's pretty darn good stuff. Um, it's sort of dystopian, sort of post-apocalyptic, but not. It's got a little bit of the uh, profit organic technology going for it. It's just a, it's a big complex book, and it, it is kind of like Brandon Graham Light. Yeah, but a little more structured. More structured and more successful than he's been lately, so who cares, you know? But, yeah. It would be a good gateway drug into Brandon Graham and, and pretty accessible just in general. You know, I'd make and a, a good protagonist, too. Yes, very good, very good. Uh, they're, they're talented people, and the spire kind of hooks you along because you want – you know, the, the, one, the thing about a successful comic is that you always want to find out what happens next. And The Spider is one of those books that, that drags you along for this mystery of about what happened with these societies that live on a, dis, uh, a world where people can't all exist. And some are mutated, some are not. There are different races. There's a major uh, monarchy exists within it. And the main protagonist is a, a high-ranking member of their police department that's got to uh, solve the mystery of assassinations of, like, high members of these sects and societies, and what does that add up to? And uh, so far, pretty good. I mean, we're, what, five or six issues in? Yeah. I'm addicted to the final two that are going to come out eventually, so. But that's a good one, too. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's kind of funny, and I'll, I'll just slightly divest from our theme, because it was funny on the Internet the other day, Andrew. <laughs> somebody said that there's an awful lot of science fiction in comics today, and... I mean, this is something you and I have been talking about for like a fucking year now. It's it's really hilarious when you find stuff on the internet that you've been talking about for a year now. Mm-hmm. And the person who was talking about the overwhelming amount of science fiction just totally failed to 
to think about the fact that these writers are trying to turn this into media development properties. And that's why science fiction is used, because it's something that, for whatever reason, the Hollywood movie studios love. I mean, you know, when Disney's doing Star Wars and Marvel's doing right. those, you know, that's what writers are thinking about. So, And the thing is, they also are thinking about getting it on TV, you know. Okay. The sci-fi channels always trying to get respectable and you know hbo's got game of thorns and thrones i mean you know fantasy is a lot more accessible than it's ever been and so in a way it, it's just the latest attempt to branch out with your property and yeah. you can't blame a writer for writing what's popular to develop right. media he's got to earn a living and if they do a quality effort who cares if if 70% of the efforts are fantasy and science fiction, as long as they're good, I don't give a shit, you know? All right, I'm going to let you handle the next one because you're doing so well talking. <sighs> Giving me Ennis Roar stories again, but you even read this one. What's <sighs> that? Where Monsters Dwell? You read it, so... I loved it. All right, so Where Monsters Dwell... <sighs> I think the closest thing to compare it to is... You know, in the 70s, I have a friend who, who likes British TV, and she once said, there's a lot of really dumb British comedy. Oh, yeah. It's really dumb. Oh, like, what's his face? That one guy, uh, Milton anyway, from the 70s. Okay. You know, I mean, they make cheap, dirty jokes, and they, they're gross. You know, well, this they're is not... This is not humor for... It's on PB, It's on BBC, which is crazy. But anyway, so that's kind of what Where Monsters Dwell is. Yeah, but, but Garth, Garth Ennis, like, because of his connections at Marvel, was able to write a Battle World tie-in, The Secret War, that had fucking absolutely nothing to do with nothing anything. Nothing to do with Secret Wars. Nothing to do... It's about the Battle of the Sexes. I mean, five issues of the protagonist and his antagonist trying to outduel one another in this prehistoric savage land that they get stuck in due to the fact that their airplane flies to the savage land. And but the, the fact that it's the savage land means nothing. Nothing. And, and, and Kazar does not make an appearance. Nope. I mean, yeah, it's... Galactus isn't in this one, but it's a great, like, battle of the sexes. I was immediately... I'm trying to think. When I said battle of the sexes... I was immediately re reminded of when I was a kid and when Billie Jean King took on Bobby Riggs in tennis. And it was like this overblown thing about who is the tougher sex, male or females, you know, or who is the superior sex. And where monsters dwell, like, tackles this with a couple of antagonists and protagonists that are half-wits. <sighs> and it's just great stuff. Russ Braun, a frequent uh, collaborator of Garth Ennis, does a great job drawing the whole thing. It has nothing to do with Marvel. Not a thing. And, and it's a sequel to that one book, uh, oh. Flight of the Phantom Eagle. Yeah, but it isn't. But it isn't, with that Howie Chagan did the art on, and it was terrible. You gotta love it, though. It has nothing to do with Marvel, but Marvel published it, and it was probably one of the best things to come out of Secret Wars. Anyway, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, beautiful Russ Braun art, oh, too. Gorgeous stuff. Anyway, <sighs> we'll move on. Another, another runner-up. we got a couple more to go here. Hip-Hop Family Tree, the Fanacraphics uh, 
single-issue reprint of Ed Pisker's History of Hip-Hop, Rock, and Roll Music done in the Marvel House style circa 1978 or something like that. And it's an educational historical document on the history of hip-hop music, which will tell you whether you want to read this or not. But it's accurate. It's historically accurate. It's fun to read in a Marvel House comic style. If I had one problem with the book is that it jams too much stuff at you, and sometimes it references itself to stuff that happened before, which I don't get because they're throwing an awful lot of people and facts at you. But if you like the history of hip-hop, this is probably the easiest way to go about reading it. And uh, the single issues are, fuck, you can read these things in half an hour. They're so dense with text and situations and everything like that. So it's a recommended read if the readers know who they are. Here's a tough one coming up now, The Auteur, Sister Bambi, the sequel to The Auteur. What do you think? I mean, did you, you read the end. I read the end. It, it, I mean... We're still working uh, it out, I know. You know... You, 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 go ahead, I'm sorry. I... Hmm. It he doesn't. It, he doesn't actually get there. He doesn't get away with it. He no. doesn't. He tries to do something unusual and tie it up, but he doesn't. You know, right? Yeah. He doesn't quite successfully do it because if there was one book that you were not going to be able to write a better sequel to, it's the auteur. Because the auteur right. is about this uh, B movie producer who falls in love and it's, it's a great love story and it fills and it's filled with like, it's one guy's struggle to create the perfect film about his true love. I guess in some ways, that's how I interpret it. Yeah. But sister Bambi is his attempt to make the film that he wanted to with his true love as a sequel. And it was never going to be as successful as its original thing. I mean, to think that you could do a sequel would be pushing it. Sister Bambi covers a lot of ground as they trot around the bases and is successful in some ways. But in the last issue, uh, Rick Spears decides to try a aesthetic format change where one page has the inner workings of what's going on in the mind of the protagonist and then the other page next to it as the script that advances the plot, right? Is that the right way to put yeah. it? And... It's an interesting one-issue experiment, but I don't know if I'd finish a story with it. Because it, it's jarring. It's jarring, and it also... It, it's at, at some point, the script story that we're not seeing is so clearly better than what we are. Because yes. there, is no, there is no story to what we are seeing. That you're just kind of like... So where's the joke? Like, why didn't you guys just deal with this? So, it, yeah, it's just not as... It does not work. It doesn't um, end properly, that's for sure. But, I mean, like, what's weird is the script's really good. Yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, you, you just because it didn't work didn't mean I didn't want to read it all the way through, you know? Right. And, um, yeah, so... It makes you work. I mean, it's kind of funny because you don't usually have to work for the end of a of this comic story, but this one you kind of do, and and perhaps that's the biggest flaw 
is that it demands that its readers take their participation to another level where the rest of the story didn't. It was pretty much straightforward. You know what I mean? Cartoons, you know, like the, the story of him trying to do this film. And then when it doesn't work out, this is the end of everything. And you don't know whether this is a hallucinatory thing going on in the protagonist's head or he actually does finish this way. But it was flawed. But you know something? I hate to say it, but with all its failures, it was still an interesting read. You know what I mean? I, I, oh, yeah. I felt compelled to finish it, and I'm not sorry I did. And if they did a third series, we'd hate read the first one, and then probably, you know, it'd get good on the second one, and then start having problems. So, yep. next up, are you still reading this? Is this still coming out? No, it was a miniseries, but it was probably one of the few things DC put out that you and I could read last year. That's true. G.I. Zombie by, uh, God, Palmiotti, Gray, and... God Hampton. Oh, that's right. It was Don Hampton doing just exploitative, dumb zombie art. Like, just the worst star-spangled war stories from 1979 you can imagine. It's like the... It's like the Brady Bunch kids version. I mean, like, the story is just... You know, except it's Palmiotti and Gray, so they've got... Domestic terrorists. And, and, and redneck villains, yeah. And, and the government... Redneck was, villains, and then, um, you know, it's basically the X-Files, right? So they have this strong female character that they just end up kidnapping. It's just goofy, and but it's beautiful, But it too. works. I mean, the idea of the United States Army... Uh, enlisting a zombie as one of their main field agents is pretty effing hilarious. It's dumb, but it works. It does. Just imagine, though, how this book would read if Paul Gullis had done the art. It would be that 70s whack-ass craziness. <clears throat> but with Scott Hampton, it's very serious. It's very serious, and you're just like, oh my god, did I just see Scott Hampton do, like, you know, a bomb drop? Whoa! Oh, yeah, you know, it's right. like... Scott Hampton is a realistic artist. He's not a bombastic, uh, cartoony, exaggerated guy. He, he, he does like these realistic painting <sighs> scenes. You know, the zombie goes, "I'm hungry. I'm going to eat my my enemy or whatever." And and the guy is smart. He's an intelligent zombie, which is pretty cool because he's actually a good field agent in the James Bond sort of way. Right. Redneck and I mean, who's the main the main guy is like this redneck guy who wants to blow up a bomb and destroy the the government. I mean, that's the the goal of his aim is to destroy the government. Like who? Ooh, that's kind of limited in your James Bond movie, but it works. And for what was it, five or six issues, it was yeah. a very enjoyable. And you know something, DC just can't figure out how to publish stuff like that anymore. This would be a good TV show. Oh, damn good, damn good. Anyway, those were our runners up. All right, so we're gonna finish. Uh, we're gonna finish the happy stuff with the promise for 2016. Uh, these are series that started uh, last year. And uh, we hope have uh, that have promise enough for us to continue reading them this year. Uh, I haven't read a single one of these comic books. You haven't read a single one of these motherfuckers. Jesus, I can't believe it, man. Anyway, that means I'm going to have to do a rapid fire thing here. So let's, all right, let's go. go with it. All right, all right. Starve. 
you know, there's a lot of shit about Brian Wood, but you know, this series about a chef that loses everything and has to claw his way back to the top on his reality TV show and get the respect of his daughter and foil his bitch and ex-wife and, and fight his competitor took everything from his life from him is great. Now, forgive me, Dangio Zulas. Okay, this is another thing. We don't know how to pronounce these people's names. We just read them. But, you know, he's a perfect cartoonist for the job. They got the first arc in 2015. I am anxiously awaiting the second arc of 2016. Uh, it was a Vertigo book, I think, before, or it was pitched as a Vertigo book. It certainly would fit and sell better as a Vertigo book. Maybe not. I don't know. But good stuff. Great stuff. Uh, the next one is the BPR universe. We say about how Marvel and DC have the lock on superheroes. And uh, you know something? Superheroes are boring. And the BPR universe talks about... BPRD! BPRD universe uh, incorporates BPRD and some of the peripheral titles. But I like BPRD better than Hellboy because I really can't get into the occult shit. And BPRD features the organization Hellboy works for. It has an ensemble cast of people who have these really fucking tragic lives and have abilities. And, man, they are up against fucking hell on Earth. Godzilla and shit coming out of hell and destroying civilization. And, you know, we are at the point where Earth is going to die and be under and be overrode by creatures from hell that all remind you of these big Godzilla-type beasts from Pacific Rim. And the characters fight the good fight, and they're all flawed, and they all have successes and they all have failures and by god fuck justice league read bprd okay uh, another one that was an absolute shining book and probably the best book dc put out this year was prez which is a revamp of an old thing about the teenage youngest president of the united states this uh book by mark russell drawn by ben caldwell and inked by the wonderful mark morales god knows what Marvel did with this guy. I mean, he's one of the best inkers in the business, and here he is working on Prez, for God's sakes. The first teenage president of America, these six issues had more social commentary, wit, advancement of the plot, and it was entertaining and challenging all the way through. And the fact is, it sold 4,000, 5,000 copies of issues. So DC took hiatus from it for a while. And, and it's sad. Because this book deserves an audience. It's very witty. It's very sharp. It's very intellectual in its own way. And maybe that's what its failure was. I don't know. But it was good. Uh, Strange Fruit by Wade and J.G. Jones. Okay, this I think was a boom book. It's got the brother. It's by. Uh, it's, it's got this like alien that lands on Earth, you know. And strangely enough, he looks like a black person. So I know there's going to be allusion towards John Carpenter's brother from another planet. It could be John Sales is too. Uh, yes, thank you. It wasn't Carpenter. It was Sales. Thank you. And it it's it's a four issue miniseries, and the first two have grabbed me. Now, if they can get the other fucking two out. In some kind of in recent order, G.G. Jones is the slowest artist in the world. I mean, he's really good, but, you know, the guy is like a Norman Rockwell level with his painted panels and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to see what happens, but I'm on board. I'm going to finish the last two issues because the first two were interesting and well done enough. All right, another one. Boy, marathon time here for Vern. Over the Garden Wall, perhaps my favorite all-ages book of the year next to Prez, but Prez is for older teens, whereas Over the Garden Wall 
was a series of animated cartoons on some God-known cable network that I have no idea what it is. But, I mean, it was just a great series. of There was a one-shot and four issues in 2015 that were just probably uh, some of the most original and driving all-ages comics I'd ever seen. So look for that. Uh, oh, by the way, Pat McHale and Jim Campbell, the creators, deserve kudos. Tokyo Ghost. Okay, Rick Reminder, uh, another writer that Andrew probably wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, and I understand why. I prefer Rick Reminder's work for DC or Marvel, particularly Marvel, because he's he's better like Morrison. When, and it, there's a thing, Morrison and Ellis work better when they have a structured universe to fall into instead of inventing their own, because then it gets a little crazy and uh, too many well paths that go in many directions. But Tokyo Ghost, the story of two cops that live... live uh, Leave a society to find a utopian way to live. You know something? Four issues of the magnificent Sean Murphy art, and I'm just, I'm hooked. I'm really hooked. I didn't think it was going to work, but I'm four issues in, and i got to read it. I think it's beautiful. And Sean Murphy just won't stop drawing. The guy just will not fucking stop drawing. When was the last time Sean Murphy drew something that I could read? Ah. <sighs> Yeah, he, he really got to get paired up with a good writer someday. You know, Tokyo Ghost works. I mean, Reminder isn't the world's greatest writer, and he brings a lot of baggage with him. But you're right. Sean Murphy needs that, that one project that puts him in the can't-miss league. And he's almost there, kind of like Bruce, but we'll go over that later. Right. Claws. Uh, the retelling of the myth of Santa Claus by Grant Morrison and Dan Mora is a wonderful – two issues in – and it's great retelling of the myth of Santa Claus, and I'm all over it. I, I get a kick out of it. I mean, Santa Claus is kind of like this barbaric guy who, who really loves children and, and loves family and everything. And, you know, he's an ass kicker, and yet he looks like a normal guy, but he's kind of a, a swordsman and stuff. And Dan Mora was a discovery. I mean, this guy's probably been around because his artwork's much too mature and accomplished to be a beginner. Uh, hooked me. And some of the concepts that Grant Morrison brings along to him, like before he Santa Claus, there's a lot of shit that happens. And in the second second issue or third, first, you know, like he says, oh, I'm going to have my pipe before I go to bed, okay, and camp out for the night. And he has these wonderful psychedelic visions and things that Morrison is, is it's his lock and key or his trade stock. And the next morning, the guy wakes up and he's got like fucking five million toys that he constructed overnight in a hallucinogenic state to distribute to the children of this town to get them free from the oppressive nature of the king of this town. And it's really solid stuff. I'm hoping for more in 16. Monstrous. Okay, I'm the last guy in the world that's going to go see a Japanese anime or read fantastic manga. Some of that shit drives me nuts because they want you to swallow a whole lot of concepts right off the bat. But Monstrous by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda is a fully realized, highly detailed thing about a story of revenge of this one warrior who's one of the last survivors of a race that lost a war with another magical race and uses her race of magical beings as a source of power, like batteries and stuff like that. And, again, I'm not a fan of this stuff. I'm also not a fan of computer-generated Photoshop artwork, okay? But Mar uh, Sana Takeda goes the next level with it. Uh, the intricacy, the detail, the, the, the sophistication of the images make this a fully realized thing somewhere on the level of Miyazaki, the movies. So 
if you're a fan of this kind of stuff, Revenge, and not too far in the pale, it's really good. And I'm looking forward to reading more of that in 2016. <sighs> Thank God. Anyway, wish list. Wish I read it, but didn't. Or did you? You read Wrenchies, though, didn't you? No. You didn't read Wrenchies? That was Daryl Farrowimple's graphic novel last year. No, I didn't I read know. it. And we both love Daryl Farrowimple. We love him. Yeah. I, feel, really? I, feel like, I feel like a guilty whore for not reading Wrenchies, I swear. You know, I, mean, I, I really. I didn't know what this was. Oh, God, I didn't know what it was, too. Did you? Oh. Yeah, I remember. Yes, I saw art from it. Oh, I know. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine it being too lengthy of a book, and I wish I had. Uh, Love and Rockets Volume 7 came out. Now, I've been following the Hernandez Brothers for years, and I didn't read this one. It was just, there was just too much to do. Now, do you remember when they went over to this format the new stories, it's called. The new stories format. I think you told me it was a good idea. It was. We never read it! I read the first four volumes, though. Okay, but they're up to seven! Exactly. I, I, I'm not, you know, and here's the thing. Maybe, because, you know, the first four, you know, the first four, a couple of them contained some of the best work that Jamie Hernandez has ever done. And you go, it, the, the, probably the one that made me the most emotionally invested was this brother of Hopi's that's mentioned for years and loving rockets. And we finally get his story. And this is 20 years after the fact. Here, then, this is when, yes, when they went to Fanagraphics. This is all when all this happened. I remember that now. But when they went to Fanagraphics for the new books, I mean, um, I think this is the thing that, by not releasing it in issues, right? By they're changing their uh, they're changing their availability. It has made it is it has almost made them disappear. Yeah, we aren't thinking about the fact that there is actually that they're still working. Yes. That they're still generating material because it just comes out once a year. Right. And it's like, I just feel like it, we're, it, issue, we're at seven. I feel like this was not a successful experiment. You know, Complete Peanuts was a successful experiment. This is not a successful publishing experiment. It's having a negative effect on comic books. Because we probably, are not talking about the Hernandez brothers. Right. Especially. We have never on this show, talked about a new Hernandez Brothers comic. Uh, I don't remember, but I'll have to take your word for it on that one. Well, we've that. never talked about Love and Rockets. Not particularly. I haven't, because I know I haven't read any of it. Adam, get over there and slap you. i got to fly take a plane out to Denver and slap you. But, <sighs> but you're right. The once the annual album makes it difficult to make a splash in the marketplace. It's like if... Alan Moore released Providence as a trade. We'd read it and we'd love the shit out of it, but we'd only talk about it for three months. Yeah, exactly. exactly. At most, right? Like, right. It's that once annual publication that doesn't 
offer a repeated occurrence that if you right. miss an issue, okay, but I read the next one, so that made me read the back one, and now I want to talk. I know they're putting out trades and things like that, but it's just like that 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 experiment also failed. That way of reading Love and Rockets, like yeah, I mean, and the books themselves are such powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, books and you know like and the fact that these guys have been doing this for what 30 years now is it's just a incredible big deal, yeah it really is so i feel bad about that okay we should probably go straight into the books of the year i think at this point yeah yep all right yep. here we go everybody all right candidates for the best comics of 2015 i'll let you start with uh, the first one here we go, everybody. Our favorite writer of the 90s, Jay Faber. Ah, yeah. No, actually, not. Not Jay Faber, right? Like, Vernon probably never read him. I never read him on JSA or something, right? Yep. Um, out of nowhere, Copperhead from Image. Jay Faber, the guy whose name I can never pronounce. Right. Kozlowski, maybe. Peter. Him. It's a Western. It's on another planet. It's got a female protagonist. It's got alien racism. It's it's awesome. Yeah, it is a great science fiction western. It's so good. It's just not even It didn't even have a speed bump. You know, throughout its publishing schedule. When people got... This came out about the same time as Bitch Planet. Oh, yeah. And and, and I know people are still excited about Bitch Planet. No, 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 no. Copperhead. Yeah, Copperhead is where you want to be. If you're talking about strong female protagonists, Copperhead, baby. I'm sorry. I know. But, yeah, Copperhead it is. Yep. Okay, another one uh, that, that still continued its flawless publishing schedule of 2015 was... Greg Ruka and Michael Lark's Lazarus. Uh, we can't say anything bad about Lazarus. It's so good now. The greatest soap opera of 2015, probably, in a dystopian futuristic setting where... Action. Action. War. Future war. Michael Lark doing future war. So good. Great soap opera uh, between family members. I mean, how do you go It's wrong? so good. It doesn't get better than Lazarus. I'm really sorry, and and it also gets the one of the few. Uh, Andrew and I mentioned uh, continuing series that go past issue twenty. Lazarus is probably the only one that we felt was flawless and worth, you know, all of our attention. Well, except for the first four issues or five, they were terrible. Oh, I, you wouldn't even read the book. Uh, well, you read the, the first issue and then you stopped. Yep. And then, and, you know, but the thing is, a lot of stuff starts off, like, with the creators trying to figure out what they really want. And then Rocket figured it out, and he, and it's just been so to, good since then. The, uh, the chemistry between these two is just flawless, okay? It's so amazing. All right. Uh, uh, and then the first six issues, first six issues of Cross Plus 100 by Alan Moore and Gabriel Andrade. Uh, at the time, and we'll, we'll we'll fix this later, but at the time, Alan Moore could be credited with trying new inroads into the horror genre with his continuation of Garth Ennis' initial inception of the cross, where, like, this disease brings out, like, the id and everyone on Earth. It's like, they're not zombies, they're just crazy, and they want to fuck you in the ass constantly kind of stuff. You know, you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But this story of a archivalist past the... Uh, outbreak of the cross is is just a hundred years past. Yeah. yeah, it's it's incredibly moving, 
and the protagonist and her fellow characters are just well-developed, and the situation is great. And Gabriel Andrade has to be credited for making an atmosphere that is fully realized down to the last fucking detail. So if you love horror, if you love post-apocalyptic stories, the first arc. I don't know if I'd read it past the Alan Moore stuff. I really couldn't. You're podcast mate Matthew, he seems to be continuing on, but I just yeah. as Edgar Moore left, I just couldn't get any interest anymore. Adam Moore's supposed to come back any day now, right? Oh, I can <sighs> keep my fingers crossed, okay. Uh, humans. This That's one hit, Yeah, this one hit me out of the blue. This was a 10-issue series. Uh, basic theme, Planet of the Apes. Earth's, apes control the Earth. Okay, but this is set in early 70s California with apes in a biker gang engaging in sex and violence and anti-social behavior and the whole thing of a protagonist that comes back from his time in Vietnam and can't fit in with his gang anymore even though he's the brother of the guy that leads it or whatever is a great story. It's in your face and it reminds me if you have any love of 60s underground comics this is your beast. Humans Get the first trade if you can find the rest of these issues. I don't know if they're gonna like reprint this. I heard it sold like shit. I hope the gods, these guys, get this stuff in print and get it out there for you. But humans is great. On to you. On to me for Velvet by uh, Steve Epting and Gray. No, Ed Brubaker. Um, <laughs> if we want to, we want to say that Jeff Lemire ripped off AI at this point. Um, Ed Brubaker's ripping off The Rock. With Velvet, and it doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter at all. Um, because it's this, uh, it's, it's gone past the gimmick. The gimmick initially was a late 60s, early 70s Cold War. Um, what happens when you're most, what happens when Peggy Carter, just through sexism, is stuck as a receptionist when she's in her 40s, and then she has to become a spy again? And the best spy that the that the kings the ever, agencies ever had, right? And Epping does this really good moody seventies art. It's really cool. It's it's unexpected because he and Brubaker did a Captain America together, and they did these homages to seventies stories. But you never got the and I mean, even though it was the same setting, like literally down to the street fight in front of Brownstones with the Falcon and Iron Man. You never really, you know, Epting was just being realistic. Yes. He was just realistically showing the brownstones, you know. He wasn't, it didn't have a retro vibe to it. Whereas with Velvet, it feels like this dank, dark, dreary Marvel, Marvel. 70s comic. It's freaking Tuma Dracula. Yeah. It's Gene Colan. He's doing Marvel Gene Colan. Right. It's, it's, it's a really nice, I mean, it, it's only flaws. It, Steve takes a long time to get it out because he, he spends so much laborious time on the artwork. But uh, the idea of the best agent of the British Secret Service being a female is a great story. And Brew Baker and Epting are just doing a great job telling it. I wish it came out more often. It's going to have to end soon. But there you go. It's still one of the best of 2015. Big Man Plans. Oh, my God. God. Let me go with this. I mean, this is a very limited audience. Eric Powell, the guy from The Goon, and his uh, uh, collaborator, Tim Weish, I think I'm pronouncing his name, do this absolutely horrendous story of a midget that grows up 
in possibly the worst way with him and his sister separated at birth or younger kids. He's drafted in the United, the Vietnam War, and he's, 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 he, his job as a midget is to go into these foxholes and kill the Vietnamese that the uh, bigger American soldiers can't get into. And his, his revenge, it's about his revenge against anybody who fucked him over as a kid. It is dark. It is dank. It is gross. It is not for everybody. It is sexual. It is horrific. And it is just heavy. But good. And good. And when you want to talk about something that ends in a crazy way and it works, as we were talking about uh, um, Sister Bambi, I mean, I have, I don't, I don't, I can't, you can't really fault big man plans because it, 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 it gets very disturbing, but it, it never wasn't disturbing. It was that you didn't want it to be disturbing. You wanted it to be this sort of death wishy vehicle for that short person from X-Men and Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. Yeah. The guy's like, you wanted, you wanted this to be Billy Barty's, you know, kick ass, you know, kill everybody Rambo movie in the 90s from Canon in the 80s. (laughs) And I mean, so it's actually like almost better than it is good. Like, I mean, it's, it's an important comic. From Eric Powell. Right, but no one, not, not too many No people, one read it. No <sighs> one read it, and very few people could stomach it. it it's pretty heavy, but it's great. Satellite right. Sam, one of the great. Satellite Sam, which should be coming back any day now, right? Really? Okay, this good. Year. Matt Fraction, Howie Chicken. This is the comic that Howard Chicken was born to draw in his maturity as a comic artist, and Matt Fraction has a great story to tell. And the 15 issues of Satellite Sam. Is it 15? It is around there. Because there's three trades, I'm guessing. There's three trades. So, yeah, and Satellite Sam, actually, it started great. Yep. It got bumpy for a bit. A bit. Uh, there was, like, probably one issue of Howie Chicken's art that looks like he was really pushing to get the death. <clears throat> and but- also the story. Don't let Fraction off the hook. Nope, nope, nope. It, you know, it, it has its bumps. I think it was the second. I mean, I think we'll just say if there are three trades, it's the second trade. Yeah. Somewhere in the second trade, there are some problems. Right. But they pulled out of it, and for the final arc, oh, man, it's so damn good. You know, <sighs> and, 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 and you don't want to give spoilers, and you don't want to say this, and you don't say how it feels, but you really want to. But you know what? It, it, it's probably one of the most successful, complete round series of the year because it, it's we want you know that needs a hardcover that needs an absolute edition that is a that is a that is a comic in its entirety worth having in your collection which you don't get a lot of those anymore you right? really don't. like and there is an omnibus edition available right now. okay because you know i bought the hell was that you know, the absolute new frontier, right? Right. There were some of us crazy bastards who bought that thing. Yep. Some of us bought Lost Girls by Alan Moore, right? All together, Satellite Sam, it's it's as close as you're going to get. To perfection in comics. It yeah. really is. It really is. The ending is superb. And not only that, but it leads to another uh, story, too. You yeah. Know? So 
You know, there's an omnibus, huh, Vernon? Okay. Uh, it, right. it, yeah, <clears throat> I'll, I'll send it to you and give you some cash. Anyway, Kaiju Max, one of the most oddball stories of 2015. Uh, Xander Canyon, uh, an indie creator out of many indie books, creates a unusual story about Japanese monster creatures that are incarcerated in a prison island. And it's a soap opera that reminds you a lot of what's that series on cable TV about men in prison? Oz. Oz. It's like Oz with Japanese movie monsters. And one of the things about Kaiju Max is that it's actually popular. It is. It's fun. It is. It is. I think the only really popular indie book we're going to talk about. Exactly. One of the few successes of 2015 yeah. in sales. And it's, it's, Im- it's Image, right? No, it's uh, no, Oni. It's Oni. Oni, no. Oni. Oni had, Go Oni. Oni had a lot. Oni had seven titles on our uh, that were mentioned tonight's broadcast. And uh, Xander Candy does a great job. Another one that uh, was an indie book that didn't succeed sales-wise but was excellent was Minimum Wage. So many so bad, many decisions, bad by decisions by one of our favorite creators, Bob Fingerman, who does a story about an independent comic artist in New York City who's trying to solve both his uh, career problems and his life partner problems. And it's just a fascinating story about a Jewish guy. But it's not overtly filled with Jewish humor, but it's got like this warmth that Jewish humor has. Yeah. And the various decisions he makes regarding the women he dates and sleeps with and all the different people he runs into professionally in the background of a New York slash Brooklyn-y soap opera detail is probably one of the most heartfelt, realistic stories. It's, it's like if Kevin Smith did a good version of Melrose Place, but for guys. Yeah. It's sex in the city for comic dorks and good. Very good. And um, just a a quick shout out. Last issue of uh, So Many Bad Decisions does have that story from Matt, uh, who writes with me at comicsfondle.com. He wrote in for the fanfic and got it. Good for him. Didn't. I think he got some sort of a prize, but he didn't know until I told him. I was like, dude, so many bad decisions. And he's like, what? And it was like one in the morning. And he was like, how do I get an issue right now? Minimum Wage started out as kind of a cool, poppy humor book. Not nearly as serious as the later two series that he's done. Well, I mean, even the first issue of this, the the first series... um, well, I wasn't that impressed with it. And then the second issue, I was just like, holy shit. Yeah. And it's because, you know, Fingerman, he works on his art, too. I mean, there's always something going on with it. and um, He's turning into a premier character cartoonist. If he would, I don't know. I just, he ends it saying, you know, buy the trade, tell your every 100 people to buy the trade twice, you know, or, yeah. or there's no more, but there are no more bad decisions. He can't afford um, to publish it anymore. $4,000. I, I, I wish you could figure out some way going digital, whatever. We'd subscribe to this. A lot of, so. I wish I'd win the lottery so I could give Bob Fingerman $50,000. Right, the Powerball people need to give Bob Fingerman a grant. But we've been talking a lot in, in, about, um, 
things staying in print and being like that. And Vernon and I haven't really bitched and moaned about digital comics and whatever for a while, but I can only hope that some of these books that have gone out of print and trade are at least available for purchase digitally. That That is the ultimate failure of great indie comics. They just can't afford to stay in print, even though they just deserve to be have a space on your bookshelf and to be enjoyed. That's all I can tell yeah. you. Bob Fingerman's the best. All right, moving on. Harrow County by Colin Bunn and Tyler Crook. Okay, We've talked about uh, – obviously, Colin Bunn's horror is his big genre, okay? Uh, Harold County is a dark horse book that involves a girl who is either born or created and is the center of a horrific witch hunt in New England. And the daughter that is survives that has to deal with her legacy as a witch – and it is creepy as shit. And Tyler Crook, who's proven his worth on multiple Dark Horse, Hellboy, and BPRD-related projects, him and Colin Bunn just weave this wonderfully absorbing story about a young girl who is helpless in the face of her fate. And it is beautifully painted and drawn, and the first arc is a trade paperback that anybody who's a lover, it doesn't go too far into the pale like Alan Moore, but it's a very acceptable horror fiction, I think. And Tyler Crook's art just perfectly complements Colin Bunn's mythological trappings. And I highly recommend this as one of the better books of 2015. All right, Princess Ugg. Princess Ugg, um, damn book isn't going to, you know, when's it coming back, Vernon? Okay. You know, all these when things did, don't sell. You know, that's the thing. I could sell it. It didn't. How did it not sell? It's te- the, Courtney Cromer's not popular anymore. What's wrong with these? You know, these you really get kid, damn kids sell this today. Shit. You could go to any retail comic shop in America that, that, that takes the time to expose their customers to better quality merchandise like I do. And it's work. And I don't mind doing the work because I want my customers to come up with good shit. And the better shops will try to tell, sell you Ted Nafa. Or Ted Knife or whatever. And Princess Ugg was an incredibly successful series from a creator who does all ages fiction, usually using female protagonists, which is a big plus of mine in this graphic graphic world of no females. Uh, the story of a Viking, or not Viking, uh, Irish ass-kicking Viking princess who has to go to civilization to learn the rules. How to be a princess! Like yeah, a Disney a princess. princess! It's awesome! It's awesome! It's great! <sighs> it's all ages. And Ted Nifa. Okay, Courtney Crumrin. Polly and the Pirates. Princess Og. These are books you should read and expose your children to. That's all I can tell you. <sighs> okay, Adam Warren was working on Overtime this year. As many of you know, I hate superhero books. And BPRD from Dark Horse and Empowered by Adam Warren are two of the best superhero books on the market. Empowered, the story of a powerful super being, Chica, who has self-esteem issues. And it's just an absolutely wonderful parody of superhero comics that is so detailed and thoughtful in its depth and texture that it deserves you. If you read any bullshit superhero books, go out and get Empowered number one right now because Empowered has just grown and developed and it's absolutely a wonderful story. And Adam Warren is 
definitely deserved of your, your, your attention and your dollars if you love superhero stories or if you like to make fun of them. You know what? Fuck Delhi. Read The Empowered. It's, it's a hundred times better. All right. You get the next one. Providence. Because I love you, man. Oh, Providence. Alan Moore's birthday gift to Lovecraft. All about... Everything evil. <laughs> Everything evil, but the protagonist is a... It's it's Alan Moore's birthday celebration of H.P. Lovecraft's legacy. And so while you have, you know, this this, this character going on a trip through Lovecraft references and stories all being sort of tied together, um, he's also gay and more made him gay because Lovecraft would have hated it because Lovecraft was, you know, this rabid homophobe. So it's, it's more sort of dealing with the ups and downs of Lovecraft, right? Yeah. And so... And a love of horror genre in general. And a love of horror genre in general. And so it all just comes together and... You know, you get through the first issue, and you're just like, oh, okay, whatever. And then there's this all this text in the back, and you're just like, I don't know if I have time to read this guy's journal. And Yeah, the back matter. Vernon was skipping the back matter until I was like, no, you have to read it. Oh, yeah, you cannot enjoy this series without reading the back Because, matter. yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's just like, oh, my God. It's <clears throat> fucking insane. I mean, we, we love Cross because of the different direction it took to the horror genre, but we didn't know shit until we started reading Providence. The, the, somehow, the, somehow Alan Moore has created this H.P. Lovecraft universe at Avatar that is as impressive at this point. I mean, that one he did, the sequel to The Courtyard. What the, what the fuck was that? Neonomicon. Uh, Neonomicon should have been a total piece of shit, right? Yes, it's been. Alan Moore doing uh, Resident Evil because of the cops with the the game. He's doing a video game adaptation. It was Alan Moore with SWAT teams. In He's the first slumming. Issue. He's slumming, but it worked. And it was, and, but it got really good. And you yeah. were just like, whoa, 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 because you know what? The courtyard wasn't that good. No, so, no, the courtyard was a one-off. Yeah, yeah. And so and then Providence is just like. We're, we're seeing really good Alan Moore doing Avatar horror comics. It's If you think of the promise of how great a comics writer that Alan Moore is, and, and his he has reinvented the horror genre with Providence. There's no yes. way to get around that. I have it's, never read a scarier comic in my 54 years than Providence. And Jason Burroughs, the artist, has to be complimented because oh, yeah. he's in sync with this guy 100%. And I'm sure there's a fucking website that explains all the little visual details that aren't even explained or talked about or even worth your time. I mean, it's just – it's an insane amount of information that all adds up to probably one of the most unusual and upsetting 
experiences in comics. The first arc, which finishes with issue six, is probably one of the scariest comics I've read in half a century or so of comic book reading. I mean, this is a, yes, you know, calling it scary, it's like when you're seven and you were reading those black and white Marvel comics you shouldn't have been, you know? Yeah, or the Warren, the Warren, the Warren. Oh, yeah, right, like, you know, the, the ones that weren't. Just busty chicks and actually okay at the end. Like Mark Wolfman didn't write those, you yeah. know. It's like they gave you nightmares at the end of the evening. Exactly. I, I read yeah. Providence Six. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I read the first half, and then when it came to the back matter, which is a journal of the protagonist recapping the day's events in his own viewpoint, made me so uncomfortable. I was scared to finish it because I just didn't want to relive it. Let's put it that way. I mean, it was... It's so fucked up. And I don't... And so, Matt... You know, shit. He actually tracks down the Lovecraft references. Because each issue has a big, huge Lovecraft story reference... And it's just like, oh, this is the issue where we talk about this story. This is the issue where, you know, the references to this story. This is the... And he's been tracking down the actual Lovecraft stories and reading them to figure out what's going on. And I'm like, shit, I wish he... Yeah, it's like, write me Cliff's notes. Because, you know, like, someday, right? With the the collection, however the... Because it's Avatar, so you know they'll get, like... they'll, They'll... Oh, well, traded those first six issues out. Oh, Pretty not silly. even that. I'm just waiting for the absolute edition because it's Avatar, so they don't care about making us wait a year to get it from China. They don't care about charging us a fortune. Yep. You know, these guys released a hardcover fashion beast. Nobody should have done that. Nope. You know, like, so they're going to give us something good, and it's going to be worth it. Because the thing is, is this is actually Alan Moore giving a shit. Yes, yes. It, it, you it, know, it, it, it's undeniably probably the comic that has affected Andrew and I the most in 2015, and a lot of my he's customers. He's working. He's yes. it's Promethea. He's working. Yes, you it, know, it, it, and, and so and it, it works. It works. Yeah. It, and it's like he's built to this from, you know, Neonomicon. No actual ambition, right? Right. Cross plus one hundred. It's Alan Moore. Writing for another creator. Yes. Garth Ennis owns Cross. This is Alan Moore writing Superman again, right? Like, Uh, and then... If you can handle the Cross, I I almost feel guilty. During the Christmas season, this young, beautiful girl came in. She goes, do you have Providence? And I go, yes, but it's pretty heavy stuff. And she goes, well, my brother wants to read it. And I'm like, well, I've got these issues in stock, and we can buy those. But if you're really not into it, you really shouldn't read it because it's the most people fucking comics I've ever seen. And you look like a really nice person. And I don't want you to get a bad presentation in my shop because you read this stuff, and you're going to think about me selling it to you after you read it. So please don't read it and just give it to your brother for Christmas, for Christ's sakes. On the other hand, everybody, wouldn't it be awesome if Providence ended with the comic book guys selling the comic to people? <laughs> and you bringing about the end of the world, bro. Oh, just just put me on a horrible face, well, will you? Yeah, that's it. This is this. All right. Because Alan right. Moore listens to the podcast. Though, I don't know if I told you this. What? 
Um, Liam Moore retweeted me a couple weeks ago. No you know shit. Is? Yeah, Liam Moore retweeted wow, his me. daughter, all right. I know, dude. I was, like, I was like, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell them to listen to the cool. fucking podcast. Yeah. And, and, and Providence with the comic book dealer, uh, you know, bring you about the end of the world by selling the comic. Speaking of comic book dealers, okay. Eltingville. Eltingville. Evan Dorkin. Possibly one of the most acerbic, abrasive people that has went to comic book conventions and knows comic book collecting and fans intimately wrote a two-part series that finished in 2015 called the Eltingville Kind Fan Club. Two issues and quite possibly the greatest self-examination of our hobby that has ever existed. The first issue, it, it talks about these guys who live in a small town and have a, they all four of them belong to the Eltonville fan club. And it contains every stereotypical, horrific reference to being a fan geek you could ever imagine. The second issue follows them five or ten years later when they all accidentally meet at San Diego Comic-Con. It is a self-examination of our hobby that is just limitless in its depraved, horrendous condemnation of all good things geek. And if you love humor, if you love to make fun of yourself, if you love to make fun of our geeky comic habit, buy fucking Eltingville Camp Fan Club. I hear there's a Canadian, what was it, the animation studio, the government did a half-hour yeah. special. Watch that too. Good stuff. And there's okay. a reference to it in the final issue. Yeah, that's good. All right, we're going to blow through our last couple here. Because uh, I didn't read one of them. So yeah, I'm going to start with the New Deal, yeah, which I just read. Um, New yeah. Deal is by Jonathan Case. guy named... Jonathan Case. Jonathan Case. Um, it was published as a collection, or as a trade from Dark Horse, but it's in four 22-page chapters, so I bet they just didn't think they could do a series. Um, it's all about uh, these... Uh, people in who work at the Plaza Hotel in the 30s. Yeah, just after uh, the Depression when the United States is starting to get out of the road. And it's, it's real good. It feels like a... It feels like if somebody could do a modern... It, it's like if Downton Abbey were a comedy set at the plaza made in the U.S. That's actually kind of what this is. Yeah. It's funny in a smart way. It touches on social issues. It's very aware and careful of what it does. And it's all very intentional because Case is clearly in love with this setting. There's movie stars. There's, yeah, it's... Uh, the story of two employees, lower-end employees, at a, a high-end New Yorkish hotel in the 30s, and their meeting of a grifter that changes their, their lives is just an absolutely wonderful story. It's masterfully told by Jonathan Case, whose it's artwork is perfect. It's a great fucking read, and it's probably one of the best graphic novels in my collection right now. And I hope to see more of it. I hope it's successful enough that we get more. All right, and we're going to finish off. Our candidates for Best Comics of 2015 with another original graphic novel. This one by a guy named Jason Little, who's an independent guy who shows up every three or four years with a really important 
nice, well thought out and executed book. This one is called Borb, B-O-R-B. And it's about the adventures of a homeless man, his history, his tragic descent into madness. And by God, it really has black humor because I laughed at many selected incidents in it involving Borb. He calls himself Borb probably because he can't remember his real fucking name. He's mentally deranged. He's had a rough life, and he's homeless. And it is Jason Little's examination. It's done in a series of syndicated daily strips that all add up to a total finality. And it makes you cry. It makes you laugh. At the end of it, I wrote an email to Jason Little saying, thank you for this great work. I wrote out a check to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless because I read this fucking book. And it is one of the most affecting graphic novels, and no one has heard of it. So please, for Christ's sakes, if you love comics, look up Borb by Jason Little. It is, it, it is up there. And, you know, and we're going to start tying up this show now. But Andrew and I want to expose you to stuff that doesn't get enough exposure, stuff that we read that really needs to be experienced and reacted to and brought into the forefront of the light because these are just works of art that are the blood, sweat, and tears of their creators. And so when we do this show, we do it out of love for everything we've written and we wish to God that, that people would take the time out to search these things out. Andrew and I are going to put up a list of everything that we've we voted for here so you can look at it again because there's no way you can remember all this bullshit we're telling you right now. But email us, comicsgallery at gmail.com or email us at Andrew's blog, comicsfondle.com and let us know because we sit here and we spend hundreds of hours reading this stuff and we want you to read it too. And that's our simplest aim of this podcast. And now, our, do, do we want a crown writer of the year? Which well, comes with, with what? What, what? What does the award winner get? <laughs> recognition of a lowly podcast that, that there are very few people listen to, but... We have three candidates for writer of the year, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about them really really quick. Well, we've we've talked about Alan Moore because he's reinvented the horror genre with Cross Plus One Hundred, First Arc, and Providence. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna call out Ed Brubaker because Ed has always been just short of the upper tier of writers. Because frankly, Andrew and I never really cared for the way he finished his stuff. There's very few successful finishes to Ed Brubaker's writing that we've really loved. We love Ed Brubaker. We will read everything the guy re- writes. But Except for Secret Avengers. Okay, exactly. There's probably a few things along the line. But he succeeded with Fade Out this year. Fade Out is easily one of our favorite books of 2015, and it didn't even finish till 2016. So we were so, looking to the last one. We're an exception for everybody. Yes. We're telling you that this is... Get the hardcover. This is it. This, this is, is it. Th- th- this and story is great. And, 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 and it's and, just it's. <sighs> Brubaker's had a very sort of interesting path as a writer. Um, 
over the last 20 years now. 93 yeah. was low life, 95-ish. Because um, the trade's 96, I think. Complete yeah. low life, I think, is 96. And he was a dark horse in the early 90s. And he's doing some really cool stuff. And then he gets to DC and he starts doing some really cool stuff. And I started rereading Catwoman because I was so impressed with some of the stuff he was doing on... Um, Captain America and stuff. Well, Fade Out, actually, because oh. I just started... Yeah. But, but yeah, so we were looking forward to him going to Marvel and doing Captain America. And then he took over Daredevil. And, 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 and Brubaker. He's always been on the edge, but never quite graduated to the must... Well, and he's a must-read writer, but he's never graduated to, like, the Alan Moore level of writing. You know, even right. though Alan Moore has a huge body of writing, we, we feel bad because Ed Brubaker has worked for 20 years and has written a absolutely wonderful pantheon of great superheroes, but he's never escaped genre. You know what I mean? Right. And it's, some of it has to do with him, like, liking genre, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so... With Fade Out, what he find when he and Phillips and he and Phillips have been working at this for a while. If this sort of film noir comes to comics, applied to different um, supernatural stuff with Fatal, which had one of the most disappointing finishes, you know, in right. a way. Um, with Criminal, with that series with the the. Batman, 60s villain, infamous, whatever. It all sort of started with Sleeper. Yeah. Being, having noir influences on James Bond and going forward. It's actually an interesting way of thinking about yeah, it. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Fade Out is them going back to noir. Doing a story about Hollywood in the noir era. And sort of creating this, it's their L.A. Confidential. Not the movie, but the freaking book by, you know, James Elroy. It's their achievement. They've now achieved this... Superstar status, for lack of a better phrase, anyway. Yeah, I mean, Brubaker got it. And our third writer of the year is a passion favorite of ours, who actually didn't do his best work, yeah, we didn't do his best work this year. But we, we brought him along because of his position in comics in 2015. Garth Ennis. Garth Ennis. And some of his stuff that started at the end of the year is better than he's been for a while, and it's differenter than he's been for a while. Yeah. So, um, yeah, War Stories had its ups and downs. Dreaming Eagles, I haven't gotten to read yet. Um, Where Monsters Dwell was really good, but... This year, I feel like War Stories was his biggest thing. Until I mean, Where Monsters Dwell was over the summer. War Stories was the year long, so it's kind of been a rough year because it's a very rocky book. We, we have to credit Garth Ennis for possibly writing some of the best. Okay, uh, uh, Train Called Love from Dynamite. Code Pink from Avatar, War mm-hmm. Stories from Avatar, Johnny Red from Titan, Dreaming Ingles from Titan or Boom, I forget, or Aftershock, I think it's called now, a new company, and More Monsters Dwell from Marvel. Garth Ennis has the unusual position of writing non-commercial stuff that he's really in love with. Yeah. And, and, and he doesn't write hits, but he writes simply the most wonderful 
B stories ever. I mean, yeah. he he gets that because he's he's not exactly B because um, Gishler does B movies, right? Yes. Ennis does B-movies with A-level production. A high-level concept. Yeah. Like, when he did that space one that wasn't any good, that's why it was pissy, because it wasn't any good. It should have been good. Right. And, and, Catalan or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's yeah. And Ennis is probably one of the best writers in the business, and he's to be congratulated for sticking to his guns and mm-hmm. remaining that old codger bohemian that's, fuck you, I could sit around and get drunk all day and write fucking stupid long underwear stories for DC and Marvel, but I decide to write what interests me. And mm-hmm. God bless writers like that to keep people who love comics interested. And there you have it. Our question 2015, man. God, it, 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 we we didn't read any too many DC or Marvels, but you know what? You don't have to. There's just like no. a lot of good shit out there, and, and uh, we we'll, probably forgot lots of good stuff. Oh, we probably did. We, I mean, there's just well, we didn't because Vernon spent a lot of time getting our list. I sure did. There couldn't be too many misses, but we, we we wanted you to be exposed or at least listen to this stuff. Check out the list we're going to post on the. Uh, Comics Gallery Facebook page so you can get a reference list of everything we talked about today. And uh, we'll catch up with you one another month or so when we get a chance to develop some of 2016's early yes. books. Let's put it that way. And we'll talk about TV because it'll come back by then. That's so, right. And what happens if tomorrow will have started? Oh, God. I'm, I'm scared, but I'm going to watch it anyway. <laughs> Well, All right, everybody. Yep. Thanks a lot for listening. We appreciate it. And read good comics. Yes, indeed. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy 2016. Take care. Bye.